0: Good afternoon, what an awesome privilege to gather together and worship our ascended Lord, the Jesus Christ. Uh, as we come together, we remember uh, that we don't come uh, at our own initiative, but rather our awesome God invites us to come and worship him. And so our sermon for this service will be about our Lord graciously being the helper of his sinful and rebellious people. So with that in mind, our call to worship is from the psalm we're about to sing, Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Uh, verses seven to eight. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. As we gather to worship this God, we come confessing our absolute dependence on him. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the Lord greets us with his blessing from scripture. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. So please join with me in singing uh, to our God who helps us in our affliction with the words of Psalm 27, stanzas 4 and 6. Come before the Lord in prayer, and we'll ask Him for a blessing on our worship this afternoon. Let's pray. O great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we seek your face. We desire to gaze upon your beauty. Lord, we thank you and praise you that in spite of our sin and our weakness and our unfaithfulness, you and your great faithfulness, you haven't thrust us aside. And instead, faithfully, all of our lives, You have proven to be our helper and our guider. Lord, we ask now as we turn to your word that you will continue to do what you've always done. Continue to help us and to guide us. Lord, we ask that you'll speak as we come to listen to your voice. We ask that you'll help us and guide us as we seek to learn more about you, more about your perfect nature, more about your ultimate beauty. And as we also turn to your word, we can learn not just more about you, but more about ourselves and our desperate need for and your beautiful providence of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, guide us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and guide us through our lives with your word as a lamp to guide our feet and a light unto our path in this dark and fearful world. Lord, help us to know more about your presence, more about your faithfulness and grace, so that we might not be afraid, but instead we might shout and praise you in confidence. We pray all these things only in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading for this service is also our scripture text. It comes from Isaiah 41, uh, verses 1 to 20. And if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah at all, you might know that the book of Isaiah is divided quite neatly into two parts. Uh, Chapters 1 to 39 are written prior to Israel going into exile, about how they surely will go into exile. Chapter 40 onward, especially 40 to 55, are written to Israel for well, they are in exile. A promising deliverance, and especially through a great and yet unexpected deliverer. And so we're going to look at chapters 40 uh, to 55, or that section at least, leading up to Easter. And as we go through a number of these chapters, I trust you'll see that they're incredibly relevant, incredibly beautiful, leading up to our celebration of the Lord's death and resurrection on Easter. Uh, But Today we're going to read, first of all, Isaiah 41, uh, verses 1 to 20, and we'll reflect on that this afternoon. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil saying of the soldering it is good and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen the offspring of Abraham my friend whom you uh, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners saying to you you are my servant I have chosen you and not cast you off fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I was set in the desert, the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So far, our reading of our our scripture passage for this service. Let's sing together in response. Uh, Psalm 121, stanzas 1 to 4, uh, which you'll see, uh, if you pay attention to what we're singing, uh, it has many parallels to our text for this afternoon. Once again, our text for this service is Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 20. No need to read it again, but I do recommend keeping it open in front of you as we work our way through the passage. Brothers and sisters, what are you afraid of? If you had asked me that question uh, a few days ago, I probably would have answered, uh, Nothing in particular, uh, at least not right now. Nothing imminent. But as I was studying this text this week, uh, I think my answer might have changed uh, at least a little bit. One theologian once said, The older I get, the more I spend time with people, the more I become convinced that many people are a mass of fears, an absolute mass of fears, we found coping mechanisms to store up in our own hearts and never let go of and the worst thing that could ever happen is if someone else found out that my heart is just a dungeon full of fears i wonder if you agree that many of us deep down that we don't often think about them we don't want to talk about them that we often have many fears in our hearts and in our souls We have feelings deep down that maybe I won't be appreciated. I won't be liked. I won't be accepted. I won't be good enough. Maybe actually I can't do it. And it can be scary to talk about things to just uh, start to scratch the surface of our fears. Because there's so much underneath. There's so much either that we are deep down afraid of or at least so much that we realize if we thought about it that we could be afraid of. For example, maybe you've been watching the news recently. It doesn't take long watching the news or talking about the news to start to see many things we could be afraid of. We could be afraid about the economy. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to our housing? What's going to happen to our food? What's going to happen for not just ourselves, but for our children? Maybe not just things about like housing, but what's going to happen to Christians? What's going to happen to the church? Maybe not just for ourselves. What's going to happen to our children? What's going to happen to our grandchildren? There seems to be signs of corruption. There seems to be signs of persecution, maybe coming closer to home. There are things that we don't want to think about too much. We don't want to talk about too much because we we could get a little bit nervous. We could get a little bit afraid. We could be also worried about potential wars, nuclear wars, natural disasters. There are many things we could be afraid of. Maybe though, this afternoon, we're not feeling very afraid. And then I want to give you the advice that one of my favorite preachers often gives. He says, if this kind of fear, if it doesn't really speak to you right now, as we lift these kind of things, if you don't feel a little bit of a tightness in your chest, then that's okay. Then we can still read this text, and this text is still for you, even if you're not feeling the fear. Because later on in your life, maybe later on in this week, things will come your way, and you might start to feel a tightness in your chest. You might start to feel fear and anxiety. So as my favorite preacher often says, maybe just keep this text we're about to study in your pocket. So that it's there, and you can pull it out when you need it. Or you can pull it out when your kids need it. Or you can pull it out when your friends need it. When fear and anxiety start to rear their ugly heads. So the question for people like us with many fears hiding just under the surface is who will help us? Who can help us? Who can save us from all of our fears? And that, brothers and sisters, is what Isaiah forty-one is about. And we'll see this in three parts. First, we'll see our need for help. Secondly, we'll see our source of help. And then, thirdly, we'll see the promised helper, our promised help. So, first of all, our need for help. And so, in general, maybe you would agree that even if you don't feel too far frightened, that human beings we are a frightened people. Many of us do have a dungeon of fears in our hearts. And that's not just true today. As I studied this text, I looked at sermons and commentaries from 40 years ago and from 150 years ago and 300 years ago to almost 500 years ago. And what each of these commentators were saying is, wow, this text speaks to our time because we live in an age of fear. And the reason why uh, this text speaks to our heart is because we are a frightened people. And so this text from well over 2,000 years ago is still very relevant because the original audience, the Israelites, they were a frightened people, living through a time of great fear and uncertainty, a lot like 500 years ago and 300 years ago and 40 years ago and still today. You need to picture the scene, the original context. Uh, At this time period, the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians. And we're in luck because we know a lot about the Assyrians, don't we? We just had a sermon series on Jonah. The Assyrians were brutal. They prided themselves on violence. They were called a nation of terrorists. The northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. And uh, more than that, other uh, superpowers had uh, risen up. The Assyrians weren't in power for too long, just over a 100 years Not long afterwards, another more powerful empire rose up, the Babylonians, and they destroyed the Assyrians. And it wasn't just them. The Babylonians also destroyed the southern kingdom, Judah, and the conquest of God's people, it seemed, was complete. The Israelites, it seemed, had lost everything. Their whole nation was defeated. Their stronghold, the capital city of Jerusalem, was destroyed. Their best and their brightest people were carried off into exile. And even their temple, the awesome gift from their God, was raided and was flattened. Even as this portion of Isaiah was read in exile, yet another superpower was being raised up. The Persians were coming before too long. This was terrifying for the world, but even more for the Israelites. There can be some comfort in knowing that you've been wronged, but it really isn't your fault. You can take some moral high ground. But what makes this even worse for the Israelites is that Isaiah has made this clear in the first part of the book. That is not the case. God's people weren't innocent bystanders just being harmed. This was a result of their sin and rebellion. Our text shows so clearly. It wasn't just happenstance that the nations crushed them. God makes it very clear. He was in control. He allowed it to happen. He decreed that it would happen. As Eric Alexander put it, the people had lost their land. They had lost their youth. They had lost their capital. They had lost their temple. But perhaps most devastating of all, they had lost heart. God himself, their God, had punished them, taken away the land he had given. His presence, it seemed, perhaps was taken. And in the exile, their identity, it seemed, would be taken. And what would become of all the promises from of old, the promises of a savior, of being God's people. This was a time of national, even international fear. And not to mention, we need to remember these people in the Bible, they're real people like us. I'm sure they had individual fears too. They had diseases, they had issues, conflicts in their families, those things struggling, they were struggling with beside. So the question is, where can we find help during such times of fear? Well, before giving us the answer, God first tells us our natural inclination as sinful people when fear and anxiety rear their ugly heads. He tells us this in verses 5 to 7, if you have the passage open in front of you. He says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. So in other words, everyone on earth is afraid at what God is doing. And so what do they do? Well, we read in verse 6. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so it cannot be moved. So in other words, these fearful people, not knowing where else to turn or what else to do, they gather together, they encourage each other in their weakness, saying, be strong. Take heart. And they work together to form something, anything to trust in. They build some idols and hope the idols can keep them safe from the future. What's to come? And as they build a savior to trust in, they encourage each other, saying, yes, this is good. This, this will help us. And when they're done, Isaiah says, uh, yeah, I think it's supposed to be kind of a joke, but it's not a particularly funny one, is it? Isaiah says, after they fashion their idol, they nail it in place so it won't fall over. The description almost seems funny. Now This is the God they trust in, something they have to n- nail down. But the people have no help And so they rush to make a God they can rely on. But this God that they want to hold them up, this God can't hold itself up. It seems funny at first, but actually, isn't it pretty sad? It's a pretty depressing picture. It's a pitiful description of fallen people. We need to realize a pitiful description, not just of others, but of sinful people like us too. When we're anxious or afraid or uncertain, We try and find or make something that we can hold on to and pretend it's strong. We hold on to it and hope it can hold us up. Isaiah has shown throughout his book how the Israelites have done exactly this. He's described how the Israelites did something that many of us still do. How the Israelites have hoarded wealth even at the expense of justice, at the expense of the poor. They had money and houses that would keep them safe. That's what they clung to. But how did it go? Their money and their houses were ransacked and destroyed. The Israelites had trusted their own military strength and their strategies. Their armies were humiliated. In their fear, the Israelites, God's people, fled to other nations like Egypt and even Assyria to make alliances to keep them safe. Their alliances failed them or betrayed them. Over and over, they even fled to other nations, gods. Maybe maybe one of these idols can hold us up. Maybe one of them can alleviate our fears. That spirit that fallen man has to try and grab something on, onto something for their own security, it hasn't gone away. As John Kelvin very famously said, I'm sure many of you have heard the quote Our hearts are idol factories. And of course we don't make physical idols anymore but our hearts attach to other things just as powerless to help, don't they? We, in our trouble, we often run to our education or to our reputation or to our family or to our career or to our earnings, to our own houses, our own wealth. In our sadness, in our despair, we run to vacations or distractions, to entertainment, to things like sex and power. These things we think, maybe, maybe if we get more of these, They'll give us what we need. Then we'll be fulfilled. Then we'll be happy. We might not always realize it, but often we feel these are the things I need for people to respect me. These are the things I need for people to accept me, to love me. These can answer the fears, the dungeon of fears in my heart. If I can just get a few more of these things and nail them down, that will answer the fear lurking within. Then I'll be secure. Then I'll be able to wake up every day and look myself in the eye. And so we run to them and grab them and encourage others in them. And if they start to slip or there are signs that these things aren't enough to save us, we just try even harder to nail them down. But unfortunately, we often don't realize that these things that we're trusting in and putting our identity in, we don't realize that we're even doing it until they start to fail us and leave us terrified. I shared before the story of a well-known pastor uh, who felt quite good and secure, like he was being blessed in his ministry. But yet when trouble started brewing in the church and there were conflicts, then he changed. He turned into a kind of person he didn't think that he would ever be. He got upset. He got anxious. His wife needed to step up and remind him, you, you know God's got this, right? You're not working. God is working here. And he knew, but, but he didn't truly feel it and he didn't know why. But then later on, uh, a few years later, they started having problems in their home. Their kids started having problems at school. And then the wife changed. She got anxious. She got nervous. She started having trouble sleeping at night. And he needed to go and remind her, it's okay. God has this too. God is the one in control here. We have him, and that's all we need. And he came to realize way later that these things were their idols. His wife, as a mother and a wife, her identity and security had grown to be in their home. And as cracks started to form in that idol, as it started to teeter and shake, the fears underneath started to come out. She couldn't look herself in the eye anymore. She didn't know if others could look her in the eye. Him, too, as a pastor, he found his self worth and security were starting to be in his work. When that started to shake, he was terrified. I read this past week about a number of actors and athletes as well who have had a huge amount of success. Really, in a way, some of them uh, have achieved everything they've set their heart on, so it seems. They've dedicated to living their lives, working for and putting their identity in, in one thing. And after they accomplished what they thought would make them happy, they ended overwhelmingly disappointed and sad. Michael Phelps is a well-known example. He's a swimmer, the most decorated Olympian of all time. After winning four gold medals and two silver medals at the 2012 Olympics, he was crushingly sad and alone and anxious. For days, he felt he was barely able to eat or sleep. He contemplated taking his own life. He didn't know what to do. Jim Carrey, he's an award-winning actor and multimillionaire. He once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they too can see. It's not the answer. Brothers and sisters, maybe for you and for me, it's not being rich and famous that we aspire to. Maybe our goals are a lot more modest. Maybe it's just that we get the job that we feel will make us happy. It won't. The house that finally we can settle down and be content. It can alleviate our fears. It won't. Finally, our family will just be perfect. That's all that we need. Jim Gary wishes that we would get them all so that we can find out it's worthless. It's not enough. They're idols. They won't satisfy our hearts. They can't hold you up. After all, you'll be left holding them up. And, brothers and sisters, this is our natural inclination. But there's no solution to fear here. That's what God makes so clear in this passage. And so what's the solution? What's the source of our help? That's our second point. This is what God has been setting us up for with his description about idols who have no power in the world he controls. He describes our natural response, and then he says, in some of the most beautiful and well-known and well-loved verses of the Old Testament, he says to his people, I know you're afraid. I know your idols can't hold themselves up, let alone hold you up, but he says in verse eight, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from his furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And, brothers and sisters, as we look at that text, there are many beautiful truths. But many people really get hung up on one word, and I think many of you probably too got caught up on one word as we read that. The little word worm. Isn't it fascinating? God calls his people a worm. Don't forget, though, you can remember why he would do this in the context. Remember that he's writing to Israel. Israel who has been reduced to nothing here. Their land is gone. Their people are gone. Their power is gone. Their reputation, their integrity are gone. It's because of their sin and their failure to trust and obey. Their own outrageous behavior. Rightfully, God's people feel like worms. They feel like the lowest of the low. And remember the advice of the world before. The people come together and they say, be strong, be strong. Yeah, you go tell a worm, be strong. See how much help that is. No, God has a far better word for these little worms. Dealing with their own sin, their own consequences, their own guilt. God says, I know exactly who I'm talking to. You worm, Jacob. To worms like us, caught in sin and affliction, this scary world too strong for us, God says to worms like us, you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, I have chosen you. What good news, isn't it? Yes, we're worms. But we're not just any worms. God has chosen us. As we read in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than any of the other people. Not so that you could be strong in yourselves. That's not what God uh, chose Israel or us. He says, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Then why did he choose them? Why did he choose us? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. When people are kind to us and help us, we can worry sometimes, can't we? If this person's maybe just being nice and kind because they want to get something out of us. Or maybe we can worry if they really care about us or if they just feel obligated to help us. Well, God makes it very clear. He doesn't feel obligated. He loves to help us. Even in our own sin and affliction, when we're suffering for our own fault, God makes it clear. He doesn't have to. He wants to. He chose you, brought you from the end of the earth, knowing very well you were weak, a sinner, a worm. And he says, you are descended from Abraham, my friend. And I don't know about you, but I think there's something really special about it. Uh, when you're going out with a, a coworker or with a previous professor or uh, whoever it is, and then you run up into someone else that they know, and they introduce you to that person, not just as a peer or a colleague, but they introduce you as a friend. Isn't that a beautiful thing? How much more awesome when God talks to his people in exile and reminds them that they're descendants, they're the family of Abraham, his friend. How much more uh, awesome when we remember that Jesus Christ identifies us, his disciples, children of Abraham by faith. Not just as servants, not just as subjects, certainly not just as sinners that he needed to redeem. But Jesus Christ says in no uncertain terms, those who believe in him, and who listen to his words, we are his friends. One song puts it incredibly beautifully. It says of Jesus, his name is true king, lord of creation, ruler without end. I call him hope, peace, wonderful savior, and what joy that Jesus calls me friend. I have a friend, a mighty friend, And Jesus is his name. I shall not fear. He holds me near. His strength will keep me safe. And, brothers and sisters, that is the confidence for the Israelites, even at the lowest point in their history, even as they're being crushed. Their Savior, their God, is still near. That should have been their confidence before. That was their confidence now. That is their source of help, our source of help in times of fear that we know and we serve an amazing God who calls sinful people like us friends. And we can be amazed because he actually goes a step further in this passage. You look at verse 14, if you have it open. There God says, though you are a lonely, a lowly worm, O Jacob, don't be afraid. People of Israel, for I will help you. I am the Lord, your Redeemer. I am the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer, is an amazing word choice. You know what a redeemer is, what it refers to. A redeemer refers to your relative, your, your next of kin. When you were in a time of trouble or when you are in a difficult situation, a redeemer in certain circumstances, they could come alongside you in your trouble. They could identify with you and they could consider your case their own case. Your enemy could become his enemy. Your debt could become his debt. And God reassures the Israelites, and he reassures you and me, that he is our redeemer. And of course, he's talking again about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God himself, come to identify with worms like us. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came from heaven on high, and he identified with us in our sin and weakness. He considered your enemies his enemies. Your sin he considered his sin. He went to the point where in Psalm 22, we can see how this applies to him. If you read Psalm 22, it was hard to see how it applies to anyone but him. But there we read these words in Psalm 22. I am a worm, not a man, scorned and despised by all. Your Savior and my Jesus Christ, could take uh, those words on his lips and sing them during his life. Because Jesus Christ came down and identified with you and me to redeem you and me. He became helpless, seemingly, for helpless people like us. He became terrified, wracked with fear for fearful people like us. He was scorned and despised, brutally rejected by man and God that we might never be. And brothers and sisters, there is the source of our help, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news is that our idols don't define us in spite of the fact that often we feel like they do. Your family doesn't define you. And if it starts to fall apart, that is not your definition. Your schoolwork and your career don't define you. Your sin and your guilt and the deep dungeon of fears hiding inside of your soul, they don't define you. But Jesus Christ defines you. He's your friend and your redeemer. And so we no longer desperately hold our idols up. Instead, we look to Jesus Christ and we see he is holding me up. We read in verse 10 of our text, Our God says to his weak people, I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. And in verse 13, for I hold you by your right hand. I, the Lord, your God, and I say to you, don't be afraid. I am here to help you. And so whatever comes our way today or comes our way this coming week, or maybe we just keep this in our pocket for the future, we can look to Jesus and see our Redeemer's nail-scarred hand is the one grabbing onto us. And we can confess, I'm not afraid as long as he is here to help me. And so, brothers and sisters, we've seen our need for help and our source of help. And now, just very briefly, we'll look at the promised help. And our third and final point. We see in the end of our text that Jesus doesn't just promise a little help to get us through. God promises people an overwhelming deliverance. And this should be extremely clear. If you look at the whole passage in its context, you can see this is a court case God is showing and he's calling the nations to witness and testify. These events that come your way in your life and mine, these events hitting the Israelites so hard, these aren't random chance. He calls the nations to witness and testify. He is in control. And he is working all things for the good of those who love him. He says, be silent and consider and you'll see. He says toward the end of our text, He says that those who are enemies of you, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians coming up, he says in increasing measure, those incensed against you, those angry with you. More than that, those who strive against you, they're working against you. Those who contend with you, they're picking a fight with you. Those who wage war against you, God says, I'm going to deliver you in such a way that you will not be able to find these enemies if you try. I am going to eliminate them from existence and you will never see them again. Then he goes on to say, towards the end of our passage, he says, you weak little worms, I'm going to make you a great threshing sledge. A threshing sledge, we don't know what it is, but it sounds powerful, doesn't it? Way better than a worm. Well, it is powerful. It was this big piece of wood with metal teeth underneath and God says these are new sharp metal teeth. Workers would stand on it, and oxen would pull it through a farmer's field, and it would pulverize. And it would rip between the wheat and the chaff. And Jesus says he's going to turn little worms like us into a great threshing sledge. But notice what he says in the text. He doesn't say we're going to be pulverizing little wheat. He says he's going to turn us into a threshing sledge that can pulverize hills and mountains, and reduce them to chaff. That dust can simply blow away. Next, he says, uh, maybe uh, the most uh, vivid picture. God says, Picture the desert to the Israelites and to us. Picture the desert and the wilderness, dry and lifeless. But God says, I'm going to make springs of water well up, I'm going to make rivers start to flow, ponds and lakes starting to form. And there will be enough water to support a great forest of every kind of trees. You can see the list he gives. God is speaking to his little worms, his seemingly crushed, weak little people, and he is promising a staggering deliverance for them. And brothers and sisters, we can see already in the Old Testament, God's deliverance was staggering. He was orchestrating all of history. If you look in the first verses of our text, God talks about raising up a man from the east. This likely refers to Cyrus of Persia. And we read in Ezra 1 verse 1 what God did when he raised up Cyrus, the leader of the Persians. Persia defeated Babylon, and Ezra 1 verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem in, Judea, in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, and that each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, that by itself is a remarkable salvation. What a comfort God has the world leaders like putty in his hands. But that doesn't come close to the salvation yet to come. Cyrus was just a small instrument to the real Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the real servant of the Lord who is coming. The one who could face the mountains in our lives, the the most powerful enduring enemies. The Israelites would have thought of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We can think of our sin and our guilt the diseases and sorrows, the fears that weigh us down, the mountains that seem too high and too strong for little worms like us. And it isn't by Persia, it's by Jesus Christ that these mountains are crushed into dust by the threshing sledge. Our sin and guilt are gone, our disease and our sorrow soon to follow. Soon we will live with God in this restored creation. Finally, we look into the desert of the world, the dry, barren lands of our own hearts, and suddenly there are springs, there are pools of living water, rivers and trees planted and thriving. Of course, we saw this last week after Christ's resurrection. We know he is the living water who pours out and gives life into the world. We saw last week after Christ's resurrection, James the doubter, his heart was transformed and he bore much fruit. Peter, the denier, went out and gave his life to Christ. Paul, the persecutor, went out into the world. And we can study world history, just look at the history books, and you can see how the living water poured out to the far ends of the earth, even to us here in Chilliwack today. And by God's grace, Jesus Christ brought life. He's transforming hearts. He's transforming minds still in the world today. And this is the answer to our fears. is not done yet. He's restoring all of creation, bringing us all to new life, and he won't stop until our enemies are gone, where we can't even find them if we seek them out, no matter how long we look. And so brothers and sisters, maybe today you're feeling afraid. I hope you can look to Jesus Christ. Remember you're a worm. Remember he's a great redeemer, and there feels some hope. But even if we're not feeling fear today, Let's keep this text in our pocket because things are going to come up. We'll be afraid or our friends will be afraid or our children will be afraid and we can pull it out. I came across two well-known pastors this week who said when they're anxious, when they're worried uh, during day-to-day life, when they're facing difficulties at home or in their families or before difficult visits or preaching, they like to go to these two verses and I'll end with this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. Please stand if you're able to, and let's sing together in response. Hymn 83, stanzas 1 and 2. now joined in professing our undoubted Catholic Christian faith as we have it summarized in the Apostles' Creed and put to music in hymn one. Let's once again go before our Heavenly Father in a word of prayer. Wonderful God and awesome Heavenly Father. Lord, who is a God like you? We can search far and wide throughout all creation and there's no other God like you to serve. Lord, we can look into our hearts and our lives, and we can see that so often we cling to created things rather than to the great Creator. Lord, thank you for the great picture that we have in your word in this passage. That even after uh, Israel had shown time and time again a failure to cling on to you, even rejecting you, running away from you, nevertheless, you clung on to a remnant for yourself. Lord, thank you for the wonderful uh, message that we can see in your word. That things in this world, they don't just come to us by chance, but all things come to us by your fatherly hand. You are the one orchestrating all things. And Lord, often as we look around, we, we, we honestly have trouble seeing how you're working these things out. But Lord, we know you, we love you, and we trust you, especially in your Son, Jesus Christ, how you showed your awesome plan for our redemption and salvation. And Lord, we trust you that you are working all things for your glory and for the good of those who love you. And Lord, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, through difficult times, through sorrow and fear, we can look and see that you have us by our right hand. And therefore, Lord, we will not fear. O Lord, we know many times we will fall into fear, but when we do, we'll run back into your loving arms, into your loving embrace, and find and trust that you have chosen us, that you love us, that you have got us, And you are the one who will bring us safely home into the great salvation you are working for us. Lord, we ask that you might equip each and every one of us in the different roles that you've given us so that we might go out into the world uh, as your children, as your servants, as your friends, as your witnesses. Lord, we think in particular today uh, of members who uh, are in our church who are single. Lord, we're so thankful for single members who uh, enjoy their singleness and use it as an opportunity, like the Apostle says, to, without distraction, dedicate their service to you. Lord, work powerfully in the hearts of these single members and help them uh, to be able to uh, be a wonderful blessing to your church. Lord, help them to be able to find satisfaction and contentment in you and in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we also want to pray for those single members who uh, aren't necessarily content those who would desire your good gifts of a relationship and of a family. Lord, we ask that you might be near to these members as well. Lord, please uh, grant them uh, comfort and help and strength as they deal uh, with this frustration. And Lord, help us as a church family to surround them with love and care. Lord, we think also about this for widows and for widowers among us. Lord, what a difficult thing uh, when we lose a loved one, a spouse. Lord, please help us as a church to take up the cause of these people as well. Lord, they can be such a blessing. And Lord, we ask that uh, we might be a blessing to them as well. Lord, we know there are also many families uh, in our church. We ask that you will powerfully equip the leaders uh, of the households, uh, the, the mothers and the fathers in their respective tasks. Lord, we ask that you might give all of the fathers in our church a real heart for Jesus Christ a real desire to follow in his footsteps and to uh, love their wives self-sacrificially as Christ loved the church. I also ask that you will uh, equip mothers, uh, especially in uh, their uh, different roles. Lord, please help us to be able to raise up our children in the way that, we, that they should go. Help us in all of our lives, try to paint a picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we think about this for just all of our members. Lord, we want to witness to our children and to our spouses and to our friends and church family who you are. We also want to witness to our neighbors who you are. Lord, please fill us up to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that the water of life might pour out over us and be a blessing to those in our church but also to those in our neighborhoods around us. Lord, we're so comforted that we can see in your word and also in our own lives that no ground is too hard for you to penetrate that you can bring forth good fruit to your glory, to the praise of your name and for our good. Lord, we ask more and more that you might do this and you might use us as your tools. We pray all of these things only in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In our worship services, we have the opportunity uh, to give our gifts to the Lord who has given so overwhelmingly generously to us And uh, once again, our collection for this service is for the Foreign Students Bursary Fund uh, to help support um, some students from South Africa who want to attend our seminary and uh, learn uh, more about theology and about uh, being a minister of the world. After the collection, please stand with me if you're able to, and we'll sing in closing from Hymn 54. Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.